this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan, and today's episode is about real people, real gaps. We will be discussing what's happening in our local jail to real people who have been arrested and are dealing with court and systems issues and how there's gaps that exist that other people who are not going through the system may not understand. And yet they do exist because people are going through it and what happens to them inside is often not talked about outside. Our guests today are Irene Morgan, Shanae Kelts, and Debbie David. What I'd like to talk about in this first question is what are some of the things that have been happening specifically in the last two years since the COVID crisis changed the way we do business in America? It changed the state of mental health. It changed the levels of fear that people are dealing with by being, you know, held into close quarters and dealing with other people. There have been some COVID outbreaks. So let's talk about the impact of all of those things. Let's start with you, Shanae, because you've been working directly with some of our clients who are actually in the justice system right now. Yeah, that's right. Hi, Joy. Hi, ladies. I'm really grateful to be here today. A little bit about me. I am a formerly incarcerated person, and I was released and let out of prison and probation in 2008. And my work has been in mostly nonprofits in Whatcom County. And I've been working with the Restorative Community Coalition now since October of 2021. When I started volunteering with you guys, you had a couple of clients you wanted me to take a look at and maybe help. One of those clients is currently housed at Whatcom County Jail. Their bail is astronomically high. And From what I know, and again, this is only what I'm able to get from my own digging and my own sleuthing around, is that this client has had two persons to represent her. The the first one was there was a conflict of interest at some point, so that uh, representation dropped her. She gained another representation who then withdrew from her case. So you're talking, when you say representation, you're talking about defense attorneys or public defenders. So Public defender. Yeah, so her consistency of being defended is has been interrupted multiple times. Multiple times. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Gaining access to her case records has been very difficult. I tried to look it up how I used to look it up on the WashingtonCourts.gov website. And at this point, you have to go directly to the county court clerk and request copies of court records. So I, before knowing that I could do that online, because I didn't want to go into the courthouse, I had had a meeting with one of the prosecuting attorneys on Zoom, who suggested I use the PDR form on the county website. So I did that. 
And I did that for both of my clients. One of my clients, I got all her records quickly within a day. This client in particular, it said no records found. And I thought that is really strange. How could there be no records found when this person is obviously physically detained inside of Whatcom County Jail? Mm -hmm. Then I decided to go visit her last weekend. I haven't spoken to her. She called me one time on the phone, but uh, I wasn't able to connect. So I decided to go see her in person. And I got up there and there was a sign on the door that said, due to COVID, we're only allowing one visitor per person per day. And I thought, well, that's really weird because you're not even in contact. There are walls and windows and we're wearing masks. Like, anyway, it made it really frustrating. Also, you know, we have, as a coalition, worked on a restorative justice plan for this client, submitted paperwork and requests and proposals to the courts, and yet have heard nothing back from anyone administratively. And I, you know, some of it may be due to COVID. I know that. I am aware. However, with all the technologies that are available, if this if this client can have a cell phone and an iPad in her cell, why can't she somehow get us paperwork or meet with us? I just don't understand the logistics. Sure. So what you're seeing is that there's a lot of ways that there are barriers or blockages or roadblocks or inabilities to function. And whether it's COVID or administrative problems within the jail system or the court system or the public defender's office or whatever, there's clearly enough disruption in the system that this is a person who is not being fairly represented according to what we think it should be relative to our promise to people to have fair and speedy trials. She's also, you know, this person as well as several others that I've talked to have ended up with problems where there's been constant continuances, like she's supposed to go to court or they're supposed to have a court action and then at the last minute or they go into the courtroom, they find out that the meeting, the prosecutor's already going to continue it or the defender's already going to continue it without communication to the client. So this Correct. is creating compound mental trauma and stress for people who don't even necessarily know what their public defender is going to do for them or how their defense is going to be managed. And this is, you know, to me, this is like some form of cruel and unusual punishment. And you know, we're in a pressure cooker. A lot of things are shut down. We understand that, except these are human beings. And we Well, and not only that, Joy, let's bring it back to how much are we paying for her to stay there? Oh, how yeah. much are you paying? How, mu how much are we as taxpayers paying for her to stay there just for the system to continue, 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 and also not address any restorative justice process for that person. It's very telling is what I have to say. Mm -hmm. And, and she's not even convicted. She's no. just accused and she doesn't even have the full range, like the injustice of not letting people know what's going on. And they're living in a, in a form of psychological fear and limbo in a in four walls where they can't even really have human solid human connection to somebody who's going to help them i mean this is yeah. this is a problem so we know this can we switch for a minute are you good with that and can we switch to um debbie for a minute 
Yeah, sure. Thanks, Joy. So, Debbie, let's have you give an idea of what kinds of things. I know that you've got a background in in home care and domestic violence and public services, social work. What kinds of things have you observed over the past year, couple of years, as things have heated up or that carry over from prior years? What are you seeing? Well, thanks, Joy. I'm glad to be here today. And thank you to our listeners that are tuning in. So what I've observed during COVID has been a great change in how uh, especially our juvenile client population is served by the mental health uh, care field. The way it used to work for support for children uh, was in-person visits in, in a private room with an either adult parent or an adult caretaker and a room that was uh, like a, basically a playroom. One of the most effective ways to help and support children to be able to open up and communicate about their feelings and process things is through play. And since COVID, all of that has gone to online on Zoom. Oh, Yeah. Um, and that has been a huge struggle. Uh, one of the clients I supported was having trouble staying within the camera range because uh, this client was in her home and in playing with toys uh, and not children don't have an awareness of, oh, there's a camera in this person I'm talking to needs to see me in order to observe my facial expressions and to be hear me clearly, etc. So the effectiveness of the support in that area. And then to the, the for, for children, abstract thought is a developmental uh, process that occurs as they get older. And so they're talking to what? They're talking to a picture. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, it's a it's very uh, much less effective, and t- in my observation, it takes longer to establish trust with that uh, that social worker or uh, therapist. Um, it takes longer for the the client, the child client, to be able to uh, settle into something that oh, you know. I'm I'm gonna I'm playing with this thing right here, and that's what helps me be able to talk. I mean, they don't the child doesn't have an understanding of that. However, that's what's needed for them to process. They can't sit and talk like adults do. They're almost always constantly moving, and that's how they work through things. So um, that's one area. Then all the uh, family court situations are have been on Zoom with rare occurrences where one individual appearing in family court might go in person, but the protocols are heavy with, you know, the masks, et cetera. Uh, But it's preferable. Go ahead. So bottom line, it's been very, very difficult to do effective. I mean, even with the best of intentions, our systems have been disrupted. And as a result of that, the children are being affected the partners and the parents are being affected and the ability to support people and provide help is very challenged, which means that the emotional trauma ripple effect on families is substantive. 
Absolutely, Joy. And the, the, in the future, there's kind of no end in sight as we move through this pandemic. It seems that we just get through a phase and start to go back to a little more normal, and then it starts to change again, um, including some areas that are doing online learning again instead of kids being in person in school, which affects their social uh, skill development, which is part of a healing process as well. So yes, multiple levels of challenges that are uh, concerning and need to be addressed very, very urgently. So this is really a generational problem that we're not going to see the ripple effects and the finish effect, the impacts for a long time down the road. And when we come back to you in a minute, Deb, maybe if you could bring up that article that you uh, pointed out the other day about the American Academy of Pediatrics and some of the statistics they've reported, this isn't necessarily in the courtroom, but just outside, because this has generational impacts across our entire society. So if you have a minute, that would be useful to bring those statistics in uh, to share them to our audiences as we move on to speak to Irene over the period of time that you've been working with people. How have you seen it and how, you know, whether the current COVID impact is affecting people in the prison system or with the type of people you work with or your own life, how do you see this affecting you given your background with incarceration and trauma and mental health and helping people get restarted and reoriented to a world that's going through dramatic change. Thank you, Joy. I'm, I'm very appreciative of this opportunity and it's so awesome to listen to other stories, other events and, and experiences because I'm learning so much from, from all of us as we go through this podcast. Uh, I have had very little contact with folks. I still write letters. However, I notice there's been a pretty good drop-off on um, those that I receive, and I can only assume that it's either people are depressed and not feeling like they want to write, and or there have been rules and regulations changed, so that's not as possible as it was before. Um, and so the, the one thing that, and I can't give much information because I've learned, I learned a long time ago that we need to be very careful to maintain people's privacy and not jeopardize them in any way. So I can't give a lot of information about the couple of cases that I've worked with in the last couple of years, but what I've noticed about the one case in particular is that the restrictions were extreme and I, I get it, they but the the depression that showed up, they were locked in their rooms. Not physically, but they there was someone in the hallways most of the time to make sure no one came out of their rooms. So it's like a form of, of forced isolation. And these are people who are supposedly coming out to learn how to be free again, but they're locked in and can't get out. So they're still dealing with isolation. Absolutely. Psychological yep. imprisonment. Yep. And, um, 
and there were just lots of lots of rules that um, I noticed had had changed and shifted. So, and and I know things are changing, and and a lot. I've seen a lot of improvement, and yet they also seem to slip backwards mm-hmm. um, with some of the things that go on. But you know, I was thinking about this a couple of days ago, and and I. I've said that I'm this bulldog that kind of sniffs around all the time and finds stuff that needs to be uncovered. And I went back to about 40 years ago when my father-in-law had congestive heart failure and he was going to a heart specialist and he'd, he'd come home, his wife had died and he'd come home to um, to our place and have dinner with us and sometimes spend the night. And I'd say, what, you know, what'd the doctor say, Grandpa? And he'd say, oh, um, uh, no, nothing, no. And so we'd ask him more questions. Oh, no, no, nothing. And I'm thinking, what's he going to the doctor for? <laughs> if nothing's going on, why is he going to the doctor? <laughs> A good question. <laughs> <laughs> so... I talked to my husband and I said, you know, would you mind if I ask your dad if it's okay if I go to the doctor with him? Well, he didn't care because he wasn't going to go. He was busy working, you know, and and so was I, but I could, I could take time. So, well, yeah, he didn't care. Hey, it gave him somebody to talk to. And we had a really good time. We'd sometimes go out for lunch and that sort of thing. And so I again, would take my pad and I'd make notes. And he was given some pretty incredible information. And the doctor was glad to see me. Now, the first doctor that I talked to about him didn't want me anywhere around. But this doctor welcomed me because he wanted, he had interest in his patient and wanted him to do as, as good as he could. So, and, I, and we did see some improvement in his condition because he, he was told to take his meds differently and, and he wasn't doing it because he, I don't know whether he didn't hear them, the instructions, or whether he couldn't, he didn't remember, whatever. So we, we got some little pill boxes for him so he could remember when to take his medication. So what happened? Okay, you're talking 40 years ago. I'm talking today. What are, where's the link here for us? So all of that was so clear that this man did better when someone was in the doctor's office with him. Got it. So that's what I do when I go to court, when I go to probation, when I, when I just sit and listen and I'm there and observing and taking notes. And that brings me to, to three different, three different clients that I've worked with. One, this was a while ago, but I was with this person who was a student at Western. They had made a, a bad judgment, was charged with something that had several different scenarios to it, but the only one that was brought forward was his. And so he was being charged. And... um he had lots of plans for his life, and if he were charged with a felony, all those plans could not legally come to fruition for him. Mm-hmm. 
So I finally asked him if I could go to the prosecutor or to the uh, defender with him. And so we did. And there were 13 continuances in 18 months. And finally, they went to court for him to, to do diversion. And um, I'm standing there behind him. The, the courtroom was absolutely packed. There wasn't any place for me to sit. So I stood behind him in the, in the um, aisle. And we're clear over against the wall. And the uh, defender finally comes up and presents him with the case. And they said, sign it. And he says, what is it? And they said, well, this is what you're pleading to today. And he says, well, uh, okay, I'll, I'll read it. I'll, and they says, you don't have time to read it. Sign it. And he says, I'm not going to sign something I haven't read. And they said, sign it. The judge is going to be calling your name. And they says, we, I, I've got other clients. And he took, I don't know, it seemed like forever. And this defender kept saying, sign it. She was shouting as loud as she could in a whisper. And finally, he signed it. I don't know how many of you have been in court, but the judge always asks you if you have been threatened or coerced or, and it's a long, long involved sentence. And he took, he, he shifted his weight from foot to foot at least three or four times before he said no, that no one had coerced him or threatened him. And that, I, I was shocked when I saw it, when I experienced that. I, number one, I couldn't believe that he could not read what he was being charged with and what he was agreeing to for the rest of his life that would change his life forever. You mean he was not allowed to read it? He could. He was perfectly literate. He could read it, but he wasn't allowed because he was under pressure from his defense attorney or the prosecutor, his defense attorney. His defense attorney. Yeah. So that was yep. duress and that was pressure, but he's now under the gun, so to speak, in front of a judge who's asking him if he's been coerced or duress or any of this. Yep. And, and they so ask every person a- that comes. They they ask every person that comes to the to the bench if this has happened to them. So this is not just a, a, a an unusual thing. It happens to everyone. And it's a common expectation from the court side that you're going to say, "No, I'm I'm not. I, this is my phone. I'm I'm agreeing to this." Even though you may never have really read it, you don't understand the long term implications of that guilty plea. You don't understand how it's going to roll out and affect your entire life and you're dealing with a young man who'd never had to be in court before. Exactly. He had no idea what he was agreeing to when he sure. stood there and said, no, he had not been coerced. Yeah. So this is a so that's, gap. And, and you know what? The worst part is actually, I'm going to back up. The worst part for them is they are so embarrassed. They are so shamed that they don't they don't tell this story and when i tell this story this is the worst part for me people do not believe me right 
That's why we're they on do air. do not believe me. And yet I stood there and I witnessed the entire thing. And there's no wonder they don't want, want cameras or recordings going mm-hmm. in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. So um, these, are, these are the things that people label me with. And, and yet I haven't, I've had very few people that have agreed to go sit in the courtrooms with me. Yeah, we don't want to go. Because even... that doesn't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then the second one, and, and so to finish this one, he went on, he, he did his diversion. It cost him a lot of money, lots of classes, lots of, um, he had, he, he had uh, difficulty meeting his job requirements because of the, the restrictions on him during that time. And it was a um, several-year period. Anyhow, he finally graduated and has gone on to be a professional, which had he not finished this diversion the way he did, he would have been blackballed for the rest of his life. And he didn't know that when he signed that document in court that day. Yeah, the unfairness is unbelievable. Can we switch gears, Irene, and go back to Shanae briefly? And then we'll come back and hear your second story. Sure. Here I am. I'm back. Yeah. So what do you want to talk about next? Because you've had you've got other places (laughs) where you've seen real people experiencing real gaps in the system. And typically, like Irene said, this doesn't get talked about in public and it's not addressed anywhere in the system correction problems or anywhere. I mean, people don't want to talk about these things. Share another experience that you've had. Sure. Let's see. I have another client most recently, and I've spoken about this possibly before on another podcast, but uh, getting the records for this client. This client was arrested three years ago, Was at, got out on bail. So this charge is three years old. And she wasn't even certain what the charge was until three months ago or two months ago when I got her records so she could look at them and decipher through them. And this is due to the fact that she was self-medicating using substances, you know, illegal substances and uh, just running amok and had done that for most of her young life. And um So the fact that, number one, she's out on bail for a charge that she has no clarity of. She never received copies of her police reports, copies of the discovery report, which if you don't know what a discovery is, it's basically everything that's happened in this specific case that you're facing, who's been talking to the police, you know, who's been doing what, basically. And she had never been given any of these things, didn't really know to ask for them either. And here's the thing. A lot of people don't know that you are allowed to have all these things. It's your right. As you're going through the process, it's your right to be able to see the evidence held against you. Anyhow, after getting them and she's deciphering through things, you know, there's names of people that she doesn't even know on the reports. This person's, you know, car or whatever. I don't know. It's just really, it's really sad and frustrating that going back to what Irene said, the hurry up through the process, hurry, hurry, sign this. We got stuff to do that happened to me as well. And it's happening today. And, and, and there's this, anybody who's on a substance who gets arrested for a crime, they're not running on logic. They're running on fear. 
And so their fear and their fight or flight is all mucked up. So, of course, they're going to just do what the officers say. I mean, they're already feeling oppressed and they're out of control. They have no control over the situation or that's how they feel. And that's the perception because of the clerical process that happens in the court being so quick. Uh, rights of the of the person being accused or not addressed correctly. Uh, I remember my own experiences being arrested and uh, sitting in a little um, one table cell to meet with my public defender it's not like your public defender sits there and says, these are your rights. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to uphold your rights for you. That's not what they do. They come in and they've already talked to the prosecutor. They've already made a deal without even seeing you. And then they have this paper. They say X, Y, and Z. And all you're doing is waiting for that. When's my release date? I mean, really, my mind, when I was arrested, I'd been on drugs and drinking and wild person in the streets, homeless, living a couch to couch. And all I could think about was just give me my release date. It didn't matter that I could fight this and I it wasn't me that did this or I happened to be with somebody else who did this. And and on top of that, if you are living in the streets and you have that lifestyle, you have to you don't tell on people. <laughs> so then you just, you know, you just take what you get. I don't know. It's just a really bad mentality and it's it really shows lack of value in yourself. I think that's the biggest piece for me to relay to everyone is Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to commit a crime without having had some type of trauma crisis or substance abuse or some kind of a, a inflicting event in their life. So they're already not thinking logically. So for them to have to sign a paper that has to do with their rights as a human being in the United States of America, they aren't even logical enough to understand that. And so it's unfair and it's not good practice. And it's totally being hypocritical within our criminal justice system, justice system. Let me repeat that. And I, it's just not, I don't care if COVID's happening or not. The system needs to be transparent, consistent, and relevant to each individual case. You know, it reminds me of my mother. She used to say, you know, what did you do that for? You need to get your head examined. <laughs> Sitting here thinking, you know, this is a justice system. <laughs> we need to have our justice system examined and corrected and um, realign to actually put freedom and the intent to take care of people, not only the people who were supposedly victimized, because many of the crimes that we're working with and many of the people that we end up um, helping to, to do restorative principles and restorative justice work are people who committed paper crimes or they committed, um, they broke the law when they didn't even intend they were because they were upset or there was an accident that happened and sure they broke the law but they didn't have the accident to break the law the law was broken as a consequence of an accident or a misjudgment so what happens is we have a system that ends up out of balance the system gets overloaded patterns erupt in the the processing of people through the paperwork through the courtrooms through the jail entry system through the appeals process through this and that and there's, it's like we've dehumanized the process of justice. And right. it's time for us to rethink how we do that. And that's the reason we're doing these podcasts to help people understand. Um, let's go to Debbie. What do you, what other thought do you have or what other story do you want to share at this point? 
Thank, thank you, Joy. And I, as you referenced before, I did uh, find this article that actually speaks very strongly to the need to address multiple issues in our future because we know, having worked with many clients, as Shanae referenced, that no one really ends up uh, in addiction patterns or ends up in the criminal justice system without some inciting event, and sometimes more than one, um, prior to whatever quote-unquote crime was committed, uh, often as a result of trauma. Uh, adverse childhood experiences is a perfect example. So I'm going to come back now to, uh, in October of 2021, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association declared a national emergency in children's mental health. It was... Uh, already on track for that to, to occur or was was an existing challenge prior to COVID and COVID uh, and the isolation, the COVID is uh, necessitated, has magnified that. Now, if we have all these children uh, that aren't getting their needs met that have mental health issues, um, here's some of the statistics. So, so this is just to be clear, this is October of 2021, which is just three months ago, basically. Yep. And so this is very recent reporting from this academy and this group of mental health professionals. Yes, representing over 70,000 uh, physicians and a multiple number of other care providers within the system. But yes, declaring a national emergency in children's mental health. We know from... Um, you know, clients that we've worked with, adults that have, have family members, et cetera, that just that alone, a, an adult involved in the criminal justice system that, ha that have children, that by itself is considered a trauma on the ACEs, uh, adverse childhood experiences uh, scoring. So now we have this isolation with the pandemic, that's a trauma. We this is urgent that we address the inequities in the criminal justice system, the difficulty in access to mental health services for children and adults. Um, we need to address our lacking public health, uh, the, the support that, that needs to be there that is that is not at the current time. The, the need, the demand is, is, and the need for it is very much stronger than the supply that's there. So we're talking about isolation. We're also talking about lack of socialization because kids have not been able to go back to school. So it's not just isolation, you know, separation. It's the socialization and the experience of being with people. So it's not the psychological effect of isolation. It's the lack of stimulation with other people of many diversities. Plus, we're dealing with children who may have had family members, grandparents, mothers, fathers die while this thing is going on. And they can't go to the funeral. They can't 
they can't grieve properly. I mean, it's like there's all these different things that are happening to these this youth and these people while the COVID crisis is happening to the adults and the family members and the grandparents who are separated from their own kids and their grandkids exactly. and their great grandkids. Exactly, Joy. This article that I just cited um, also references that more than 140,000 U.S. children experienced death of a primary secondary caregiver during the pandemic as a result of, yeah, children of color disproportionately impacted. So, yeah, can't process the loss. So one of the things that I... I was struck by when I was looking at this note was the amount of suicides that were happening in emergency in emergency care facilities. Do you uh, do you want to talk yeah. about that briefly? Yeah. So, yes, according now, what they know is that this was already uh, by two, 2018 suicide was the second leading cause of death for kids age 10 to 24. So, yes. Um, and then in in 2020, emergency department visits for mental health emergencies rose by 24% for kids age 5 to 11 and 31% for kids age 12 to 17. So all of these- that was and that was just compared to the year before 2019. So in one year, you had that increase in emergency room visits. Yes. Yeah. And they do cite um early 2021, that it was uh, suicide attempts increased nearly 51% in girls age 12 to 17. So that's February to March of 2021. Yeah. That's stunning. A 50% growth rate. And I don't know if you've been looking, but I've seen the amount of suicides in the baby boomer, boomer generation, the silent generation across our, our socio-demographic platform, suicides, mental health injuries, um, or mental health and trauma problems, it has been escalating. So dealing with this relative to, you know, why are we talking about this on an I change justice? Well, all of this is interrelated with justice. And when you have people that are getting arrested, that are going through extremely dominative justice system situations, and we can't talk to each other, and the authorities get to take charge because we're in an emergency crisis, the lack of communication, and I think this is related to the bullying that we're experiencing in our courts, that we're the bullying that we're experiencing in our council meetings, in our homeless situations. I think this is a crisis that's sort of like spreading out. So is there more you want to say about this, Debbie, or can we go back to hearing Irene's second story? I saw briefly about the suicide rate in the baby boomer population, and it's currently being studied, and I, there aren't um, COVID time uh, statistics that I found, but all of these issues are very important to address, and yes, they are all interconnected. So I'll turn it back over to you and to Irene, and thank you very much to our listeners. <laughs> yeah, Irene, let's go with your next story. Oh, my goodness. This is just, it's awesome, all this information. Um, the We're talking about gaps and what happens to real people. And one of my clients had been in court, and I, I got there later, so I'm not really sure how it all started. 
but she had had a defender before. She didn't have one now. So um, it was suggested that she get a public defender. So, and all you have to do, there's that phrase again, all you have to do is go downstairs to the second floor, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the, the office. It it, um, uh, it escapes me right now. But it, it there's not much there if you're scattered and, and aren't really functional, then the, the name of the office might escape you quite quickly, quite easily, as it is me right now. And so we go down there, and we walk into this very nicely appointed office, not very big. Um, there's a couple of windows where someone is behind. You know, they go in a, a room behind and, and look through the window and, and serve you. The door's locked. There's nobody there. There's uh, some pamphlets in a, in a bowl on a table clear at the end. And so we look around and, you know, we try to find another orifice or something and there's nothing there. And I look at her and she looks at me and, and we said, well, now what do we do? And so there's not anything. I look out the, the door into the hallway and there's nothing really close by that I can see that is relevant to what we're trying to do. And so I'm just I'm just standing there scratching my head and we're discussing, you know, did we hear things correctly? Is this where we're supposed to be? What what is all this? And um so we walked out in the hall and we again stood there and talked among us, just the two of us, and someone went by and I said, Is this blah blah blah? Oh yeah, yeah, this is where you find your defender. Well, there's nobody there. And well, gee. Sometimes they have to go to, to the jail for court. And I'm thinking, well, gee, it'd be nice to have a note or something. And so, so, so hold on. You were in court with this client. The court told her to go get a public defender, to go to this office. You guys went downtown, downstairs. You went to the office. The office is locked and there's no instruction as to where to go get help. You got to go back. No, no, no. Is that what no, happened? The, the office is not locked. We oh, went just, inside the office. Okay. Well, we went inside the office, and there's a door in the office that leads to a cubbyhole. I see. So um, that door is locked. There's no. There's nobody there. And um, so, long story short, we go back into the office. I'm looking for some kind of a pamphlet or something that, that gives us instruction. Now, I know because I've already helped several people through the, the system that this is, a, this is a, an absolute dead end for most people that are in trauma, that are going through the court system, have no idea what's really going on, and they're sent to an empty office with no information. So uh, as we were ready to leave, this woman comes through the door, and she's so, she's so friendly, and she's just... And, this awesome personality and she's the gal that we're supposed to talk to. And so I quiz her a little bit because that's who I am. You know, why isn't there? Oh, well, she says, I left a note on the door. Well, it had gotten waylaid or she forgot to do it, whatever. And so she says, Oh yeah, well, all you have to do is blah, 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 blah. And so she sets her up with uh, a defender or, or the process by which she would get a defender 
And I'm looking at my client, and I says, so if I hadn't been with you, what would have happened? And she says, I don't know, but this is crazy. This is just crazy. And we were there for probably 20 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Well, most people I know don't have that long of an attention span that are going through court. So, um, so then that, now this is a completely different client, and I'm in court. They have had an experience with, with a family member, and the whole family, this client's whole family, is traumatized by what happened. And there was, there was an incident where someone um, took advantage of one of the family members, and my client um, knew that it was a bully episode, and he was um, arrested, and I think he spent some time in jail. But anyhow, I went to court with him, and it, this is just, the courtroom is packed full of people. And the judge spends maybe, spends maybe 30 seconds to a minute with each person in the courtroom. I, it, maybe it's arraignment, I don't know. And, and so there's a defender there for him, and he comes back, after he talks to, after the judge talks to him, and I said, "Where's your paperwork?" And he says, "Well, I didn't get any." I says, "You need paperwork. When's your next court date?" And he says, "I don't know." And I says, "Where's your paperwork?" And he says, "I didn't get any." It's like, didn't you hear me? <laughs> and I says, "Go back and see your defender, who was not an underling. They had a, a fairly decent." position within the defender's office and I says go tell them that you want your paperwork that that you didn't get the sheet so he went back up there and this defender says oh there isn't any go down to the clerk's office and they'll tell you when your next appointment is your next court date is and I said what and he says yeah and I so we went down to the clerk's office well, they don't have any idea. It hasn't even got back to their office yet. They have no idea. And I says, okay. So I says, his defender gave him no paperwork, which, by the way, aren't they supposed to? Well, yeah, usually they get paper. Usually. So um, she says, well, there's no way I have, I can't get anything until all that stuff comes back and it gets into our computer, go online and check and see when your next appointment is, your next court date is. This is not just, this is a court date. And thank God this man has a computer. Right. Most people I know that go through the courts don't have computers. And yet everyone, or most people think that everyone now has a computer. Not everyone has a computer or cell phone now. Right. And this was several years ago. Right. Before well, COVID. I, yeah. What so I to- my point is that people don't believe this. And yet I have experienced it over and over and over. 
and it's just the way it is, Irene. So this is this is an attitude that the not only the system has, but the public has. And they're just bad people. I don't know why you're wasting your time. They are not bad people. Most of them don't belong in our systems that we could we could do so much better doing restorative justice. And that's that's my whole bent. That's where I'm going is restorative justice. Because I have seen all these glitches within our system. So the glitches within the system are pandemic. They exist in many different places, and we have noticed that. And I, I would like to just be very clear that with the COVID crisis and the fact that gates have been closed, doors have been closed, people have been on leave, a lot of the services that used to exist even two years ago today are not. I had a client, this is very short, I had a client who was trying to pay child support payments. He was trying to pay child support payments into the system and because of state requirements and shutdowns in computers and constant redirection, it took him over a week and I watched him every day. He was frantically trying to pay his payments so that he could get out of the system. He wanted to complete the process and he had made arrangements to make payments on this thing, multiple payments. And he kept running around and around and around and he would call me up and he'd go, I can't believe it. I'm at another dead end. Where else could I go? And we spent, and he had like three different people helping him try to figure out how to make payments during this period of time. That's a nightmare. So it's, it's constant, it's consistent. It's not necessarily any one person's fault, but it, we do have systemic dysfunction. So Irene, we've just got a couple minutes left. Can you um, wrap it up from your perspective? Thank you, Joy. I just remembered too, this last um, case I talked about where the fellow didn't get his paperwork. It wasn't until a year or so later that you were speaking to this client and they told you that if it hadn't been for my intervention, he wouldn't have made it. Right. Yep. So this is, a, and I had no idea. All I was doing from my perspective was using common sense. And what the one thing that I tell people, they'll they'll start going into this long detail about how we can, you know, why aren't they doing this? Why do, if you try to use common sense with the justice system, you will drive yourself crazy. Because, and that's what I've, if, if I've learned nothing else, just because I expect it to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen in the courts or with probation or anything. The, the common sense element is is virtually non-existent. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, listeners. I, I, hope, I hope that this gives you some insight as to why we are in such a mess in our county, in our state, and in our, in our whole co- uh, country and the world. And I want to say thank you, Irene, to that, because what we've we've been doing over this last couple of years, since we've been shut down and under lockdown in so many different ways, our coalition, largely with your guidance, Irene, we have training programs that are being developed and, and pro- produced 
that will be online training for mentorship, for people who want to volunteer with our organization, for people who want to get trained in court navigation, in case interception, in coaching people to help families get through these crisis conditions. I think it's extremely important that the audience understand we're not just complaining. We're not just raising these questions of gaps. We wouldn't even be talking about it if we didn't know that every single one of these things could be fixed and we figured out ways to help fix it, whether or not we're inside the system and whether or not the system wants to change, we can help the humans and the families themselves outside of the system keep themselves outside of the system, work to restore equity and equanimity and family relationships and heal things. That's what we're really up to. So Sinead, do you have a couple of closing comments? Sure. I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who tunes in to listen to our podcast. We hope that you take an opportunity to support us, visit our website. We have a new website that's being built right now. And I just hope that you stick with us and invite your friends. Thank you so much. And thank you, Debbie, Shanae, Irene. Awesome talk today. Come back and listen, people. We've got more to share next week. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.